Every Sunday at 1 o'clock, and we also play on Mondays at 2 p.m. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram, and we also now have a Twitter, which is Indigo Radio underscore VT. And our shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions on the show are that of the show, not the radio station. And this is Anna for Indigo. Uh, I'm here in the studio. Happy Sunday, everyone. Today we spend the hour with Greg Mingo. That was uh, one of Greg's favorite songs, the James Brown uh, song that I just played. This week, Greg sat down with myself and another one of our hosts, Nicole Awad, and we spoke for him for a good hour, and today we're going to air that interview. Greg spent 40 years incarcerated for a crime he did not commit, and in August, this past August, he was granted clemency by uh, then-Governor Cuomo, and he was released September 16th. And you can find more about him at freegregmingo.com. I would love to start is for you to introduce yourself and, and what you want people to know about you, maybe where you grew up, anything that you would love our listeners to hear about who you are. 
Right. Uh, well, my name is Greg Mingo. I'm one of five children to a single parent. And uh, I grew up in New York City in Harlem. And I grew up, I went to Catholic school for eight years. Uh, and I went to regular high school. And then after that, I kind of uh, just worked. And uh, college wasn't really on my radar at the time, right? But I was always smart in school. I excelled in school. In fact, um, when I was in the seventh and eighth grade, I used to attend Fordham University for special mm -hmm. classes three times a week. I would, they would let me out early and I would travel there and I would go to summer school to Regis High School, completing the summer program. And I was always pretty bright. And I mean, the 90s, 93, 94 average most through school most of the time. And uh, I worked in a, just led a regular life, you know, what I would call regular anyway. You know, then the nightmare happened and uh, I spent the last 40 years inside for a crime I didn't commit. Yeah. So things I like to do, I like to work out. I like to, uh, I like to help people because I'm in a position where I can. And if I know something, I like to help them all kind of ways. Legally, I'm a paralegal. Mm. Also facilitate and teach a lot of classes, a variety of kind of classes. Uh, um, so I do a wide range of things. I cook for large groups of people, um, three, four hundred people at a time. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, I stay busy. Morning to nighttime, I stay busy. And, you know, people always tell me to slow down, slow down. But that's not who I am. So, yeah. yeah. You know, when you're a kid and you want to go back out and play, and your parents don't want to let you go back out. So I used to pout in front of my mother in the hopes that she would feel sorry for me and let me go back out. <laughs> well, it didn't work. And then she started telling me how to cook and teaching me how to cook. And I watched her. And then when she realized that I knew how to do it, she made me cook dinner for the family, my brothers and sisters <laughs> while she was at work. <laughs> so she kind of tricked me into cooking, you know? Yeah, and that's how it started. That's great. So you mentioned, you know, you spent the last four, almost 40 years. 40 years, five, one month and 21 days. 40 years, one month and 21 days. Yeah. And you spent all that time inside for something that you didn't do. And right. so we were hoping that you could talk to us in whatever way you can about your case. Back in a, a crime occurred back in 1980. Uh, certain things, certain aspects I, I can't go into because I have some stuff pending right now. And at, under the advice of the attorneys, I have to limit what I say. What I can tell you is just public, you know, general information. Uh, in 1980, uh, two people were killed in Queens. In 1981, I was arrested for it. And myself and somebody else in charge were committing these crimes. At the time of the crime occurred, I had an alibi. I had moved my sister. I had moved into Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She attended Smith. Uh, I was out there at the time. I was locked, so I was locked up. I didn't have any bail, so I couldn't make bail at all. Uh, I spent two years fighting the case. I went to trial twice. Uh, the first trial ended in a hung jury, 11 to one in my favor. And when I was retried, I was convicted. There's no outside of uh, one person said that I told him we did it. And somebody else said that my co-defendant told him that we did it. And that was it. That was the extent of the evidence against the case. 
There's no forensic evidence, no physical evidence. Uh, and the two people that alleged this, one was in jail for shooting his uh, girlfriend in the head. Uh, and the other one had a criminal history of 29 to 30 prior arrests. And that's what they used to keep me in jail all the time. But, you know, I never thought the day would come where I would get convicted. I was offered plea deals and I turned them down. And I had never went to trial. And so uh, it was a new experience. And then after I was convicted, I thought, you know, the worst I would get was 25 to life. That's what I was told. But then the judge wound up sentences, sentencing me to 50 years to life. If you go on a website, you can see there's a whole slew of uh, craziness that went on from the trial lawyer to the appeal lawyer to the trial judge. Uh, in fact, the trial judge, he didn't say it in my case, but he made uh, racist comments. And he was censured for it. Right after he sentenced me, he made a comment. He used the N-word in the courtroom against some other defendants. Uh, so it was a lot that went on. All right. So without going into specifics, you know, you can look it up. It's public information. You can Google it. So I spent the last 40 years inside. And one of the things that I think hurt me the most is that uh, once you're convicted, you have an opportunity to have an appeal. When I had the appeal, the lawyer just literally took some litigation that I had done on my own and resubmitted it. And so when that happened, I was procedurally barred. So in other words, any issues that I could have raised up on the appeal are uh, procedurally barred. That means you can't ever raise them up again. So in other words, if you had trial and you don't object to something that happened at trial, you can't raise it on appeal. But if you object to something at trial, you can raise it on appeal, but if you don't raise it on appeal, you waive it forever. And so, you know, that kind of closed the door on me. Uh, and after that, I just decided, you know, I had to take my life in my own hands. And I started studying the law, going to college, studying the law. As soon as I came upstate, I entered into college. I entered into Mercy College. Then they offered a degree in paralegal studies. So I switched colleges and entered into that college. And then from there, I just kept every day, you know, staying at it, staying at it. And I became very proficient in the law. As a result, you know, over the years, I was able to help a lot of guys. You know, I helped some guys get home, get their sentence reduced, helped them with, you know, all kind of problems uh, from uh, custody issues to divorces, to civil actions. My work included a wide parameter of legal work. From there, I just, you know, got involved in teaching classes and developing programs. And that's how it all started. And that's what I've done the last uh, whole time I was inside, you know, fighting my case and hoping that uh, somewhere along the line, something would happen for me. And I just didn't give up. And actually, uh, I was surprised to get clemency mm -hmm. uh, because usually clemency is kind of like going to the parole board where they want you to admit your guilt accept responsibility for the crime, express remorse, and establish a record of change. Well, I wasn't ready to do that because if I went in there and told them, all right, I accept responsibility, I'd be lying to them and I'd be lying to myself. So I decided, you know, I had to take that stance. So that's the stance I took when I made this push for clemency. And I thought that would come back to hurt me because it's really granted under those circumstances. But I had a lot of uh, support. I had a lot of help. I had a lot of wonderful people behind me. And I couldn't have done it without them.
You know, I've tried for 40 years on my own to get a lot of things done and it just didn't happen. And kind of like everything fell into place. The atmosphere was right. The timing was right. The people that got on board to help me, everything was like, uh, it's like they took this huge jigsaw puzzle, took all the pieces, shaked them up, threw them out on a, on a big gym floor, and said, put them together. And everybody put a piece together, but collectively put a piece together. And the end result was me being here now. when we had spoken on the phone, you talked about um, when your five-year-old niece came to visit you. And so that was early on. And both Nick and I are teachers and we work with a lot of other teachers and we work with lots of different ages. I'm mostly working with college students. Nick's working with middle school, high school, but we definitely have teachers among us that work with young kids. And one of the things we're always doing as the group of us is trying to, uh, be better about how we teach about certain things and how we teach about the world and the struggle in front of us. And so you had told me um, about your five-year-old niece and her asking you about where you were. And I would love for you to tell that story and, and, and what you told her. My sister came and brought her daughter, which is my niece, to visit me one day. And she must have been maybe anywhere between maybe four and six years old. So we we there in the prison. So she asked me, what is this place? So I explained to her that it's prison. So she said, what's prison? So I explained that it's a place where they send people who they say did bad things. So she asked me, uh, 
what kind of thing? So I said all sorts of things. You know, when they say when you're bad and you do something you're not supposed to do, this is where they send you. So she asked me, uh, uh, how long are you here? I said, I don't know. So then she said, uh, what did they say you did? So, you know, I was truthful to her. And I said that they said that I hurt two people. She said, well, did you do it? And I said, no. And her next question was, then why are you here? Now, that's really hard to explain to somebody, especially a child, because in her mind, well, if you didn't do anything, then why are you here? So there was the perception and trying to explain to her the perception and the system. It was it was a difficult conversation because honestly, I didn't know what to say at that point. Uh, so I tried my best to explain that sometimes mistakes happen and people uh they say people did things and people don't necessarily have to have done these things. And I'm trying to not talk to her, to talk to her in a way where she can understand it and grasp it. And I think I did a good enough job because she kind of grasped it. And from that point on, she's, you know, been there writing me all the time, you know, always being in my corner, uh, writing poems, sending it to me. And I remember some of the poems she wrote, like when she was eight years old, she was writing poems that I couldn't even write. And so we just developed a bond over time. And, you know, as she grew up, I grew up with her actually because she was born while I was locked up. So we never had a relationship outside of prison. So everything we did, either talking on the phone or through letters or from visits from time to time or, um, that's how our bond started and it continued to grow from there and it continued. And, uh, thanks to her and her friends, you know, uh, they made this real big push. And so it's clear. And one thing I try not to do is lie to, to anybody, whether it's children or adults about anything, because, you know, you get, you tell one lie and then Bill, you have to tell another lie to cover the first lie and it keeps going. And before you know it, you know, one strong wind comes by and that house lies comes tumbling down. So I never do that. I don't lie to particularly the kids because kids have good memories and they don't forget. And you have to be honest with them. That is so. super true that kids have good memories. Yeah, they do. I say things, I don't remember I've said them, but kids remember <laughs> that I've said yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. You'd be surprised what kids remember, you know? And as adults, what we do influences children so much. I, I I could look back on it now and stuff that I heard when I was growing up around the house and things like that. And I could see how, now I could see how it shaped some of my attitudes or some of my beliefs or perceptions about life, and about people and different things. Well, speaking about changing people's life, lives and perception, I'm wondering if you could Tell us about the teaching that you did while you were inside. You know, what classes you taught and what you enjoyed most about your teaching. Right. Maybe it was challenging. Okay. Well, um, initially, when I um, came to prison, uh, I initially took a job as a facility painter, but that's because I was also attending college at night. Uh, and then I took a paralegal course six months, five nights a week. And then I um, passed it and then I took it again just so I could make sure I had it, <laughs> I had it right. And then from there, I just did different uh, jobs. And then I decided I got a job in pre-release center. That was basically helping men prepare to go home. And from that point on, uh, uh, 
we was teaching classes. We taught basic uh, life skills, advanced life skills. We did mock parole interviews, employment workshops, uh, how to write a resume. And then it kind of evolved from there. And then we started developing a bunch of other classes, uh, created a domestic violence program, a communications program, a fatherhood workshop. And that was uh, with Vassar College coming into the prison and interacting with the other prisoners. You know, we would interview prisoners, select them to participate in the groups. And it'd be Vassar College students and prisoners. And we, you know, run the, out myself and somebody else would facilitate the classes. And most of the classes are programs that we developed and created ourselves. Then I kept at it and then um, we developed another program, uh, family law, family dynamics, and dealing with, you know, adoption, uh, termination of parental rights, uh, just covered a whole spectrum. Uh, we did that with Columbia Law School. Professor Genty, he came in, he liked the program, so he started bringing his students in. And prior to that also, for a while, I participated in uh, another program that had already been in existence where Yale Law students came in. I participated in a lot and just kept growing from there. And the whole idea was it was something that I enjoyed doing because not only was I teaching, I was also learning. I think when you teach, you learn, you know, and I try to explain to people uh, when you participate in groups, you know, a lot of times people just want to lay back and just listen to what's being said. But and I, I encourage everybody because I believe everybody has something valuable to contribute. We may, some people may not think that, but everybody has something valuable to say. And so I always try to encourage guys to speak up, to participate. So I did that for a number of years. And then I was transferred to another jail and I created an organization, an African-American cultural organization. And then we incorporated a, a number of programs in there, all kinds of programs from fatherhood to again, domestic violence, uh, a number of programs. I was transferred from there to Comstock and Comstock is a prison that doesn't really offer many programs. The programs that DOCS does have is uh, ART, which stands for Aggression Replacement Training. It's a violence program. And ASAP, which is a substance abuse program. That's the only two programs they offer. There's no other programs available, nothing tangible where a guy could take a program and prepare himself to go home. No, I've always respected the teaching aspect of it because outside of parent being a parent, so much time is spent with teachers. And I think teachers are solely, solely uh, unappreciated in society as a whole. They are. You know, if I have a child, I'm sitting my child, most of the time I'm at work, my child is going to school. So a teacher literally helped to raise children, to raise everybody's children. I just kind of took the teaching and I enjoyed it. And I looked at it this way, you know, if I knew something or if I had something, or some knowledge or some information, if I could pass along, you know, then my living won't be in vain. You know, it's about each one teach one, it's about giving. And I try to point out the difference between information and knowledge. I think information is just something that you can pick up. I could pick up a magazine and just read what's in the magazine, but if I can't apply that or use it in some way, then it's just information. It's useless information, actually. 
So knowledge is something, is information that you can take and apply. And that's how I look at knowledge. So can I ask just a follow-up? I'm curious mm -hmm. from the classes that you described teaching, the um, you know parenting classes, communications, family law, domestic violence, what were some of the learning you think that the that the guys in your classes took away? What was their response to having the ability, you know, being uh, in a place that's so constricting, but then being able to like use one's mind in a in a dynamic way in, inside with you as a teacher? Like for instance, uh, the domestic violence program, um, I think we help change people's perception about relationships between men and women, you know, because men for a long time had this warped sense of uh, entitlement. I try to teach him about the, the rule of thumb. You know what the rule of thumb is? The rule of thumb was a, a law that came out that was initially initiated in England. And it was, they gave men permission to beat their wives as long as the stick was no thicker than their thumb. And that's where the expression comes from. So we try to bring a real aspect and try to explain to guys, you know, when you when you have relationships with other people, you have to treat them the same way you're going to treat your, your sister, your mother, your daughter, because there's somebody else's sister, mother and daughter. And so I think uh, um, the big takeaway was we changed the perception about how we interact as men and women, or, or even just as people, just as any kind of relationships. And I think that was the big takeaway from that changing their perception about, you know, what's right and what's wrong when it comes to relationships, you know, the expectations that come with it. Because there's so much stereotypes. Just for instance, I try to explain to them, um, if I was a man and I was living, say, in a housing project and I slept with 10 women in the building, I would be considered a lover, Romeo, given all these accolades. But if a woman did the exact same thing, She'd be a you-know-what, right? But she did the exact same thing that I did, so where's the distinction at? You know, so we try to get them away from sexual stereotypes and, you know, just the degradation of each other, you know, using derogatory terms, just all of it, and just change their mindset and their perception. So there's a lot of things dealing with the law, dealing with uh, visitation, custody, you know, things like that, that we try to teach that guys weren't aware of. Because I look at it this way, and I ask this question to you. Name one thing in life that's not governed by a rule, law, or regulation. One thing. I can't think of anything. The, I can't think of anything the, either. It's a great question. From the air we breathe to the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, everything that we do in life is governed by some sort of rule, law, or regulation. So it makes sense to have a, a grasp, at least a little bit of it. So, you know, uh, so I try to impart that. Then there's the communication class. We teach a communication class how to be effective communicator. You know, and I try to focus a lot on listening. We're taught how to read, write, talk, but we're never taught how to listen effectively. Listen for the total thing of what's being said. So we try to cover different aspects. You know, body language, of course, is a big part. And, and just try to show people how they can improve their conversations. 
for instance, if a guy's inside and he's talking about, he's in the yard and he's talking with his buddies and he's just having this kind of conversation. But if you're going on a visit with your family, you're having another conversation. And if you're trying to go before the parole board or for the counselor, there's different levels of communication. You have to be able to learn how to be an effective communicator. You know, you have to learn how to stand up and not be afraid to talk in front of a group or lead a group. You know, and it, it develops self-confidence in your ability to what you can do. So that's just a couple of the programs that we did uh, to try to get guys back on the right track, so to speak. I remember when I first came on state, there was only one prison for women. Mm. All right. Then they started creating more and more prisons and you started seeing women come to prison in larger numbers. And like you said, primarily it was for drugs, drug possession, drug use. And a lot of it stemmed from abuse. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought domestic violence was so important to teach because it ties into there. Because uh, there's all kind of abuse. Usually when somebody thinks of abuse, you think of physical abuse. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But there's emotional abuse. There's uh, economic abuse, verbal abuse. There's all kinds of different aspects to abuse. People ask all the time, well, why wouldn't they leave the relationship, you know? It's, it's, it sounds easy to just, oh, this guy's abusing me or this person's abusing me and I'm going to leave. But it sounds good, but that's how we would respond. And I think when, when people look at those situations, they're looking at it from the perspective of how they would respond as opposed to taking into consideration the other person's position, yeah. what they're going through. You know, you haven't walked in their shoes, so you really don't know. For sure.
just shifting a little bit around, if you could talk to us about health in prison. And you had said to me that you essentially don't have health inside. And I think that along with that, if you could talk about maybe health in general, but also about aging uh, in prison, because I know that 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 there's been a huge push, especially with COVID, to get um, people out. Right. The health care in prison is very difficult. Uh, I could go on and name a number of examples. Uh, And a lot of the doctors, the so-called doctors that work in there, uh, have been banned in other states. For instance, uh, I know of one doctor, he was banned. He lost his license to practice in another state. But he can come to New York and work inside the prison system. And supposed to be as long as he's supervised. But the reality is that they're not supervised. And so the medical care is inadequate. And, you know, it's, it's just poor. When you're inside, you're, you're on the bottom of the totem pole, so to speak. You know, so the quality of care that you get is next to none for the most part. Then you're dealing with uh, the guards and uh, staff and, you know, just the whole thing and just trying to get some something really done. I had an injury. I went in, it was diagnosed as uh, twisted my ankle. Turns out I walked around on a torn Achilles for seven weeks and then had to have reconstructive surgery. But because it was diagnosed as one thing and it really was something else. So that's the kind of inadequate care. Um, Mistakes having somebody put on a getting dialysis treatment when there was nothing wrong with them. Just, you know, the overall healthcare system inside corrections is really, really poor. It really is. Everything they want to give you uh, for any ailment is a Motrin. <laughs> That's the answer to everything. Take these Motrin and, you know, come back later. But like I said, you know, inside you learn not to have any expectations expectations is a bad habit to have because you set yourself up for a letdown in any, in any area with health care or just, you know, the system itself. So you try to just keep an open mind and you hope, but not have expectations. As far as growing old in prison, there's a lot of people, you know, grow old in prison. Uh, I remember first coming into prison, uh, I had all my hair, <laughs> you know, I was still kind of young and you know, as the years pass, you look in the mirror and you start to wonder, damn, who is this person? You know, you start to see yourself change and age. And, and the more time you spend in prison, inside, you grow old in prison, but you, gr- but you grow. And I think that's a big difference. Everybody eventually grows. I don't look at um, necessarily as changing. People talk about uh, some, somebody needs to change. I think more than anything, they need to grow. So, but it's hard growing old in prison. Uh, um, you can't do everything you want to do. I mean, people die in prison. I had a, the co-defendant I had, he died in prison. I was charged with a co-defendant, he died in 93. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing growing up and growing old in prison. There was times uh, for myself, Speaking for myself, there was times where I actually thought that this was my whole life, that the life I had before when I was free was actually something I wished or I dreamt about. It was a fantasy that I had. And it seemed like because your life is fastened to a set of rules and regulations, you know, uh, there's no 
privacy, you know, faces people decide where and when you work, wake up, you know, yeah. There's no individuality is discouraged. So, you know, it's a lot of things that come into play. There's a number of older people in prison. And for the most part, those older people uh, are the ones that are less likely to come back. And it should be a push uh, to release aging people in prison. Maybe 40% of the prison population is over 50 years of age. I was down at a, a rally after I came home and we was asked to speak and while I was speaking, but before I spoke, there was a young lady that was there and her father was 82 years old and he got locked up for a nonviolent offense. And he's in a maximum security prison right now and she's trying to get him out on clemency. Now, if it's a nonviolent offense, it couldn't have been that serious where you send an 82 year old man to prison. He caught COVID, he has all kinds of health issues that's just the reality of the situation. You could go in there and you could die in there. A couple of weeks before, um, exactly one week before I was released, I actually been granted clemency and I had to wait a short period of time. And it was a guy on my company that got locked up when he was 16 years old. He's been incarcerated for 45 years and he died. Uh, he worked with me. I went to the, you know, I went outside to exercise. I came back. I walked past the cell, I said something to him, he didn't respond. And the next thing I know, they're taking him out on a stretcher and they found him unresponsive. He just died, right? apparently from a heart attack. You know, and that could be brought on by the stress. Imagine being inside for 45 years. You're 16 years old and you've been locked up for 45 years. Your whole life has been prison. You don't know anything beyond that. So it's difficult, you know, to be in prison and to grow old. You start, you know, you start to realize your own mortality. You realize that you're on the clock. When I say on the clock, that your time is winding down on this earth. So, you know, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of anxiety. If you don't have support, then you, you're really in a bad way. So it's difficult. You know, you, you, you find yourself thinking, you know, you might, you're, not, you're never going to get out. And if you do get out, you know, you'd be so old, you'd be useless. It's difficult. Can you, you talk know. about that maybe as it relates also to COVID and visitation? I know that that was a piece that. All right. This, for instance, like, uh, you know, COVID, the guy, one guy, another guy I know is a man, 73 years old, been incarcerated 41 years, and he caught COVID when it first came out. And they had him in the outside hospital. They had him on a respirator. They had to give him that uh, blood plaza treatment in order to keep them alive. Fortunately, there wasn't a big, big outbreak in the prison. I expected to be a lot more than what it was. And, um, and then there's the other aspect. If somebody caught COVID or tested positive for COVID, it was going to isolate you. They're going to put you on a company in a cell by yourself. And everybody in that whole company is there quarantined. You're not getting access to the phone, to the tablet, to nothing. nothing. Uh, they let you out when they let you out for different things. And you have to stay there anywhere from 10 to 14 days. So if you did catch COVID and you were sick, people were reluctant to go to sick call and say that, that they feeling sick so they could be tested because they didn't want to be isolated. So that created another problem. 
the hospital. Nobody wants to be up in the hospital. You know, the facility hospital, they have one up there. That's, you do not want to go up there. Can you tell us more about why people didn't want to be in there? Well, it's cold. You're stuck in a room. There's an issue with the TV. There was times where uh, you wanted to change the channel on the TV and they, they, didn't, they, they didn't know where the remote was. So you couldn't change the channel. So whoever was there stayed there. Uh, you're dealing with other people's attitudes and you're just locked in this room. Or if you're in a room with one other, two other person, you don't have any of your personal belongings. So there's nothing you can do. You're stuck in this room all day. And it's just a, just miserable being up there. I stayed up there a couple of times. Uh, in fact, after I came back from outside hospital having surgery, I had to stay up there for four more days. And I dreaded it. It's, it's, just, it's just not a positive situation. We wanted to ask you, well, one of the things I know that you wanted to talk about is around the inequities within the criminal justice system. Do you want to touch on that? There's a lot of inequities. I think, you know, everybody feeds off everybody else. In other words, uh, for instance, they're closing six prisons, right? The governor announced. So that means staff has to be shuffled to different prisons. That means prisoners have to be moved. And then you have the parole board. It's in their interest to keep people in prison, because if you release people out of prison, jobs are going to be lost. Same thing with the criminal justice system. If you arrest less people and you, for things, then there's no need for as many judges they have, no need for many prosecutors. And, it, you know, it's a snowball effect and everybody feeds off everybody else from corrections all the way through the district attorney's office, the police department. And everybody is living off of um, everybody else's misery. You know, and this, the sentencing disparities uh, out of control. You know, judges have discretion to do this or do that. You know, uh, if you don't take a plea, you, you go to trial, you get convicted. You know, you're getting hit with a more severe penalty. It's just a lot that goes wrong. I tell guys all the time, uh, you know, people. one big complaint people have is inadequate legal care that, uh, legal representation that they get. But then the real reality is that I ask a guy, well, if you were a lawyer and you had 15 other clients, right, and you work from nine to five, are you taking them clients home with you? And most people will tell you no. So why would you expect the, that lawyer that's assigned to you to take you home with them? You know, the real reality is that they have lives too. And so you can't build up your expectations about certain things. You know, the criminal justice system is rigged for people to be locked up. You know, it's, it's just like a quota that they have to keep. It's like writing parking tickets. You know, you want to keep a certain quota. You want to keep a certain amount of people in prison. If they let 2,000 people go home tomorrow, imagine the effects that would have across the board as far as jobs, security, as far as, you know, it would affect everybody. It would affect correction officers, counselors, because you wouldn't have a need for all these people now. You wouldn't have the parole board. You know, you could have less people on there. Another example is the parole board. The, the people who sit on the parole board who's making these judgments are all tied to law enforcement. So there's no real impartiality in the system at all. Another example is, what would you say most judges were before they were uh, judges? Most of them were prosecutors. So if I was a prosecutor for 15 years and now I'm elevated to, the, to a judgeship, 
where do you think my allegiance lies? Where do you think I'm going to lean towards? Towards yeah. the prosecution or towards the defense? Mm -hmm. I could go on and on. There's uh, the burden is on the so-called burden is on the prosecutor to prove that you're guilty. But the real reality is that you have to prove that you're innocent. Yeah. That's the real reality. It sounds good. Uh, the people have the burden of proof. You know, you, you, you get arrested, you're sitting there, you're in front of a jury, and the first thing they're going to think of is the same thing that my niece said. Well, if you didn't do anything wrong, why are you here? Yeah. There's deals done, backdoor deals. It's who you know. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. I know instances where uh, cases were reversed and thrown out, and I knew it was going to happen before it happened because I, to I was told it was going to happen. And then when it happened, it really made me believe that, you know, what they told me was true because it happened exactly like they said. And so I never said nothing about it. I kept it to myself. You know, I could have tried to make us think about it at that time. But, you know, when you're living in a, uh, in a society like that and living inside, you know, there are certain codes that you have to live by. Just like in society, there are certain rules. Inside, there are certain rules. And one of the rules is, you know, don't tell. So you might know something, but you're not going to say nothing because you, you live by the standard. Not saying it's right or wrong, but that's the one that everybody, for the most part, adopts. Hmm. You know, guys that have been inside for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it's just so much wrong that needs to be corrected. It's just not one single thing. You know, the system is unfair uh, when it comes to sentencing. The sentencing aspects are grossly disproportionate based on uh, where you come from, based on race, based on a lot of things. Uh, uh, somebody, two people can get convicted of the same crime and one guy get the max and the other guy get the minimum. Yeah. So there's a lot of disparities in the system as a whole. But I think you can't give up. I try not to give up on anybody. Even if they get try to, I feel like they're giving up on themselves. I try to push them and not to give up. I think it's important not to give up. You have too many choices. Either you fight or you give up. Fight for what you believe in. Fight for your life. Fight to get your life back on track. Or give up. There, mm -hmm. there are no alternatives. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's it important. Like, uh, it sounds like you're a really good teacher. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> I, yes. I, I, would, I hope so. I hope I can make an impact. I think I have over time. And I, and I started to see it the last couple of years, you know, with all the support that I've had and the things that people have written about me and said about me. And it's kind of like, like, wow, like we was talking about the, um, her friend Anna had uh, uh, went to a rally and spoke about me at the rally. So I'm listening to it and it just like broke me down. You know, just to hear somebody say that about you and, mm. but you know, you don't do it. I'm sure y'all don't teach because y'all looking for accolades. <laughs> you do it because it's you. It's what you love to do. And so, you know, when people t say good things about you, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're doing what you, you know, you're doing the right thing. You can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out.
second part of that question is what is your hope today or what maybe gives you hope and in, in, inside inside that's all that's all you really have is hope you hope this you hope that you know so many things that you hope for but you try not to try not to build your hopes up too high but you still have them uh because you have to have some hope Otherwise, you know, you, you might start feeling depressed. You start thinking, you know, this and that, and you hope this. Like, for instance, guys hope that laws would be changed all the time and they had get a chance to get out. That's what a lot of people in prison hope for. They hope that some good time would be enacted to where um, uh, you could earn time off of your sentence. You know, when people talk about good time in New York, you know, a guy was released on good time. That's that's a fantasy. You know, uh, the real reality is good time doesn't exist in New York. You can't earn time off of good behavior. The most you can probably earn is maybe go to the parole board six months sooner if you do this, 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 and this. And not everybody gets a chance to do that because not everybody's maybe capable of doing it. It's hard to have hope inside there because it's such a depressing place, but you have to have hope. And, and I've, I've had hope and what I always, I try to find what I've always cling to. And it's the idea that sooner or later, you know, the truth will come out. I have to have hope and I have to believe that things are gonna work out. Because if I don't believe, I don't lost half the battle. If I sit there and say, well, I can't do this or I can't do that, then I'm never gonna do it. Because in my mind, half half the battle is lost the minute you think you can't. Because you're not going to put that effort forth. But if you believe that you can do something, and you wholeheartedly believe that, you'll put that effort in. And it's not easy. 
You know, if you don't have family support, if you don't have some kind of support, it's easy to fall into the trap of getting caught up in the prison lifestyle, you know, getting caught up in, in gangs or drugs or just living a miserable existence. So it's hard, you know, and a lot of people don't have hope. So it's, it's, it's hard to fight. And what I hope for is kind of like what you do. I have hope that it can be a better world. It can be a better place. And what helped me believe that even more so now than ever is uh, when I came home, people asked me what was my wow moment. And my, you know, like, was it electronics? Was it this? Was it that? But for me, my wow moment was all the, the help and the love and support that so many people shown me, people I don't even know. You know, they would tell me the numbers that people signed on the petition and I'm like, what? I don't even know a quarter of these people, but they was all behind, the, you know, behind me. And so with that kind of feeling, there's hope in the human in human beings. It renewed my faith because inside you really don't have faith. You know, you lose hope in, in people and just kind of everything. You know, once you see that outpouring of love and the times are different, you know, more so than they've ever been. And I, so that's hopeful. There's a lot going on. The younger generation seems to take up the fight that existed back in the 60s and the 70s. You know, everybody's pushing, everybody's hopeful. And, you know, if we could just um, find a way to keep that hope alive, that's an expression, but if we could find a way to keep that hope alive, I think things could be different. They can be better and they can be better. There's, there's no reason on this earth that people can't get along with each other. Nobody's different, nobody's better. You know, I have this job, he has job job. I'm a famous movie star. He's just somebody working in the deli. There's no difference between us except we doing different things. That's all it is. You know, if you can get people to buy into those kind of ideas and yeah, a lot of changes could be done. So yeah, I do have hope for a better world, for a better existence, for generations to come. But everybody doesn't share that sentiment. And so I try not to let people steal my joy. You know, sometimes people just live off the misery of other people. And so I think it's important not to let people stay enjoy. One promise I made to myself when I came home was not to let anything upset me. I'm not going to get mad. I don't care who does what, who says what. I'm not going to allow them to, you know, steal what I have back for myself. So I don't raise my voice. I don't get angry if something happened. I just deal with it. You know, because most in life is what happens a small part, it's a small part. Whatever happens to us in life is just a small part, it happened. But how you respond to it is really important because it's gonna happen, there's no getting around it. Things are gonna happen in life. Whether they're good or bad, they're gonna happen. And so you have to find a way to respond to it no matter what. All of those things kind of give me hope. Thank you for that. Your, your voice is very much needed right now. and. I, I really appreciate that, what you just said around that. It's helpful, helpful to me. You know, you, you want to be impactful. You want to you wanna make a difference. And if everybody, well, you can only, we can only do so much as individuals, but collectively we can do a lot. And so it's important to come together collectively to try to do a lot. Since I came home, I've tried to, 
you know, people tell me, ah, oh, you should rest, take a couple of months off, do this, do that. But I can't do that. You know, it's just I try to give the blessing back to people who really need it and do the things that need to be done. Could you tell us maybe a little bit, like, what are those things that you want to do? That was kind of our last question was, you know, you have this hope for the youth and you have this hope for young people and future generations. And so that means we have to act now and get up and be moving, keep it moving, even if people are trying to steal our joy. Like, I'm, you know, I think your message is a really powerful one. And I'm wondering where would you like to see, you know, us moving together? In, in, in all aspects of life, uh, uh, sit down, talk to each other, have conversations, you know, uh, real genuine conversations, heart-to-heart conversations in, in every area, whether it's work, whether it's, uh, I think we have to start socially. And I think, look at children. Children, you put a bunch of kids together and they'll get along fine. I don't care what race they are, who they are, where they come from, none of it matters because they're all children. And as we grow older, we develop all these prejudices and these biases, all this learned behavior. And I think as parents and teachers, you know, we have to try to guide the children in a way so they don't pick up those bad habits because that's all they are, bad habits. You know, I remember an experience I had in this department store and this little kid, he must have been three, three, four years old. He pulls on his mother's skirt and he said, look, mommy, uh, and he used the N-word. Now, at my first reaction was, what? You know, like, I couldn't believe this little kid said this. And so his mother's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know where he got that from. But apparently, we all know where he got it from. He picked it up either in the home or somewhere. You know, he was too small to be in school. So he had to pick it up in the house. So those are kind of learned behaviors that start turning into something else. And being a parent, being a teacher is probably the single most important factor, I think, for determining the quality of life for children. I can't think of anything more important than what you learn at home and what you learn in school. Of course, they're gonna teach you the basics, but and I think school shouldn't be so rigid and focus on solely just subjects that might not really matter down the line. Try to develop programs and incorporate in the system that teach them more about life, about how to respect other people. You know, we're all the same and things like that. We should, what I think we should all do is take a look in the mirror first and foremost, you know, and look past the, uh, the image of who you think you are, who you think other people think you are, and try to find who you really are. And it's not always easy to do. It's easy to say, but doing it is a whole nother story, you know. And if we could do that, then, you know, we could develop a whole lot. But it has to come from us individually. So in order to be and work collectively. Yeah. But the school system, I think, could be restructured to teach, teach children more about how to interact with each other, how to respect each other. I just want to ask, is there anything that we have not asked you or, or touched on that you um, want to talk about? I touched briefly on good time. Every, in my entire time inside, there's always a good time bill that comes up every year. And every year it never gets anywhere. And so that's the kind of hope people cling on to. Mm-hmm. Every year, everybody hopes, yo, hope they pass the good time. Hope 
because this is a way where they can earn their way out, earn their second chance. Mm-hmm. Right now, if I was inside, if I um, if I went to college, if I turned a degree, or on the other hand, if I got in trouble, I beat people up, I was involved in gangs or drugs, he's got just as, I was in the box all the time, he's got just as much a chance as a guy who's di- accomplished all these uh, different things to go home as the next person. So there's no incentive. And I think if you give people an incentive to earn their way, to earn a second chance, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have a lot of other states where you might get 10 days off a month or whatever it is, earn, earn good time. And you'd be surprised it changed people's behavior because now they have something they can hope for. They can hope to have a lesser sentence. I'm not saying, you know, obviously the door is not just going to open. You're going to let everybody out. But at least a guy could start to feel better about himself. He could start having a different outlook, a different perspective about himself, about what life really is, and have an opportunity to learn how to grow and develop. You know, you got a lot of these uh, kids, uh, they come inside, they're young, and they haven't had a chance to really live life and understand what life is. And so if you lock them away forever, and when I say the system is rigged, go, could I go back for a minute and regress? I'm going to give you an example. They have, uh, years ago, if a guy got convicted of, say, killing somebody, right, most homicides are not intentional. So that's why they charge felony murder, because they may happen during the course of committing another crime, somebody dies or whatever. But what they did to ensure that they keep people locked up is you would get charged with second degree murder. What they did is take under the felony murder statute, what they would do is take the felony murder statute and they elevated and incorporated into the first degree murder charge. So now when you get sentenced, you get a sentence of life without parole. That means you don't have a chance. You look at the guys that got convicted today uh, of killing Ahmaud Arbery, right? They they may face a, a life sentence, but they eligible to be released after 30 years. In New York, you don't have that. So I think good time is important. Uh, I think increasing the prison wages for prisoners for the work that they do. You take, for an example, uh, uh, I worked in the law library for years, right? Uh, I taught the legal research class. I taught guys how to be law clerks. Uh, I developed my own uh, curriculum, and I taught guys, and I helped guys pass the test that Albany gives in order for them to work in the law library. But yet I get paid less, a lot less, than somebody who works in industry or in, uh, in the mess hall. But what I do is specialized area. I have to be trained. You have to take the classes. You have to take tests. You have to train for this. With other jobs, you could just stick anybody in. And the other aspect is that the cost of living escalator has risen, but the prison, the increase for prison, prisoners hasn't. So it creates more of a burden for the families. And that's a whole nother thing about the how families are affected. One reason I mentioned visitation is, uh, you come into the prison, sometimes uh, families are made to feel like they committed a crime. They come in to visit a loved one, they're treated badly, uh, they're made to feel uh, they're disrespected. You know, they just look at them differently. You know, they treat them differently. Uh, and it doesn't matter who you are. 
So it's a lot of things that has to be done. I've been going around trying to do what I can to encourage people. I, I have to go to Bard College next month and speak to students up there. I already spoke to law students down here. I'm going on an a, a interview with somebody who's uh, talking to a reporter for an interview Sunday. So me and another friend of mine are going to go with that person because they were going to go by themselves so they could have some company dealing with the criminal justice stuff, clemency, all of that. So, you know, I'm just trying to help out wherever I can and just, you know, impart whatever I can. Yeah, well, you have so much to impart. So we want to thank you so much, Greg. Also, um, you have a birthday coming up. Is that right? (laughs) How do you know about that? You told me. (laughs) (laughs) When's your birthday again? Uh, The 27th of next month. Oh, okay, right. December 27th. Two days after Christmas. Well, happy birthday in advance. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. you. So glad that you're home, Greg. You know, I just try to live uh, the best life I can, you know, and one way is uh, to give, you know, not material things necessarily, but give anything that I might have to offer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're so glad you're home and. Nobody's gladder than me. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. (laughs) This is Anna for Indigo Radio, and you have been listening to Greg Mingo. Greg spent 40 years incarcerated, was granted clemency in August, and he was home September 16th. And so we want to thank Greg so much for sitting with us this past week uh, with my co-host Nicole and I. I also want to give a big thanks to Anna Vukpavlovich. Anna is a childhood friend of mine, so we go way back. And Anna is the one that connected us, uh, connected Indigo Radio to Greg. Again, a huge thanks to uh, Greg for spending time with us, uh, for all the the words that you had to share with us and all of our listeners. And we're wishing you the best. We're going to play another song from Greg Mingo's playlist that Anna had sent me. Uh, We're going to go out with a song called I Want to Thank You by Alicia Myers. So thanks so much, everyone. And um, we'll be here next week at 1 o'clock. Happy Sunday to you all. Bye.